a podcast where we sit down with everyday Americans and hear their extraordinary stories. I'm your host, Deborah Drucker. Come along with me as we discuss those things that we were always told not to talk about. Politics, religion, and more. I promise you'll be inspired and have your mind opened by the end of this episode. Well, it was kind of cold that night. She stood alone on the balcony Yeah, she could hear the cars roll by Out on 441 Like waves crashing on the beach Hello everyone and welcome to Deborah Craddock. Today on Deborah Craddock, we will be meeting Rachel Cooks. Rachel is an artist in the hair and makeup industry. She is a lover of people, a survivor of abuse, and an advocate for special needs in the public school system. Let's get to know how this American woman overcame tremendous obstacles and became the well-rounded and compassionate person that she is. How are you doing today, Rachel? I'm doing great, Deb. How are you? Pretty good. It's, an, it's a little bit cloudy out, but other than that, I'm fine. Um, I wanted to ask you, I know you live in Orange County now, but where are you originally from? Uh, I, I was born in Orange, and uh, my family moved a lot when I was growing up. Who did you grow up with? I grew up with my brother, my mom, uh, my dad, would be stepdad, five cousins. Uh, my grandparents were a really big part of my life on both sides. And what was that home life like? It was really, in retrospect, interesting. I've, I'm grateful for the experiences that I had, but it was hard. It was really hard. My dad was a young father, and my mom was a young mother, and I don't think they really had it all figured out quite yet. And so I was there through the growing pains. The hardest part was the addiction and drug abuse that led to a lot of domestic violence between my parents. And were both parents addicts? No. My mom's a saint. Yeah, she was a banker for most of my life, the breadwinner. She held it down through the experiences having a, a husband who was an addict. She was a little controlling, right? She had to hold everything down and she wasn't necessarily emotionally available all the time. I have a lot of fondness for her. We're very close. I think now in, in our older age, we're closer to peers rather than parent and child. But I kind of always felt that way with her. So I imagine that was not the happiest upbringing. Absolutely not. It was traumatic. I, I would say that most of my memories are filled with trauma. Uh, I can dig around for some Disneyland moments. Having been brought up in Orange County, my mom used Disneyland as our escape. Um, so there's there's happy moments, but a lot of pain. I'm so sorry. Was it a physically abusive or more an emotionally abusive situation? He was physically abusive. To you children as well? It was to my mom most of the time. Um, anything would set him off. That is not an uncommon situation no, I've not, been hearing about. Um I, too, had a 
a father with a hair trigger temper. Mm-hmm. Yes, my biological father. So I understand the environment. It's incredible Scary. to have survived that. When I look back now at where I am in life, not only was it traumatic because of his um, his behavior, but I also ended up finding out when I was 11 years old that he wasn't actually my biological father. So I was raised with him as my dad and my mom raised my brother and I to love him no matter what. And she instilled this empathy and this just true unconditional love in us for him. When I was 11 years old and found out that he wasn't even my dad, I'll never forget how I felt to know that like I was not half devil. I had convinced myself that I was half evil. And so my mom had kept it from me all these years that my biological father had actually left when I was six months old. Was that a relief? It was such a relief. But my mom's response, interestingly, was, no, he loves you. He loves you. He loves you still. And I, I remember holding my face in my hands thinking, like, no, please don't say that. I am so relieved to know that I am actually not of that. While you're growing up in this home, how long was your father there before your mom decided to move away from him? We would run away a lot, but I think that the final time we ran away, it was about nine years old. He ended up moving to Vegas. My mom tried to reestablish herself independently. Um, She had other boyfriends and and other relationships in between nine and 12 years old, but he ended up coming back. They got back together and that kind of led into what would be my teenage years, right? He was present then. And they're now divorced, finally. Interestingly, she's paying him alimony and is required to pay him $35,000 despite her experiences as a domestic violence survivor. When you're growing up in this household, is there any political connection? Do your parents have any perspective on the politics out there in America? Was there any discussion at the dinner table? So my dad was really passionate a really passionate Republican. And nothing that he ever said made sense to me. I didn't understand how this person who is obviously on drugs could also then care so much about what the rich people are doing. It didn't make sense, but my grandparents were self-made millionaires. And and so they had lived this kind of lifestyle that I later found out even he was not their natural child and I was not his natural child. So you're raised by your stepdad, who you believe is your real father. Mm-hmm. As you're growing up, do you have a fondness for him or do you have animosity for what you see, how he treats your mom and his drug addiction and his volatility? How does that impact you? I find myself relating a lot to the character Matilda. Have you seen that movie? Oh, yes. And the way that she looks at her dad, right? I was a very aware child. I was very... Um, sensitive and intelligent. My senses were always on. And now, you know, as an adult, I have very acute senses, as you can imagine, growing up in that environment. And so I don't remember feeling anything but bad for him. Okay. So you're sympathetic, empathetic. Mm -hmm. That's just kind of your nature, I think. Tell me how the uh, American girl came to be. Is it your father's side, your mother's side. My, my parent, my mom was born here. I was born here. My grandparents were actually born Nebraska and Jersey. So you're a number of generations I, down. I'm here. We're, you're here, we're you're, solid. You're here. You're yeah. entrenched. You are 
All-American. You said that the political party your family was most affiliated with at that time in your memory is uh, the Republican Party. That's what my dad would represent. My grandfather was uh, oil, he ran the cranes at the oil refinery. So he'd wake up to the alarm clock every day, put on his blue jeans and his work boots, and he'd get in his big truck and he'd go out to the oil refinery and he'd come home for dinner by 4.30 where my grandma had the dinner on the table. Like my mother's family was very working class. Very, like, blue-collar. Very blue-collar. Union jobs, probably. Union jobs. Yeah. Yes, both of them. And so they did well for themselves, and they were satisfied. But they listened a lot to what the news told them. What the news said was law. That was true, and you didn't argue with it. When you are being raised in this household, is there any religion? Yes, my mom kept us really close to church. Christianity, non-denominational. I feel in retrospect that she leaned on that a lot for us. And I remember going to a lot of different churches and people helping us. Did you feel connected to it? There were times in my life when I did. So did that help you through some of this despair and this difficult time? Yeah, I'd say like by the time high school came, my first boyfriend was somebody I met at church. Our families went to the same church locally. And it was kind of embedded in my, my family's culture but I didn't see it brought home, you know? It was a safe space, but I don't feel like it was well-practiced. Do you feel that religion and just that political environment that you grew up with, does that have any influence in your political perspective today? I definitely feel that I have more interest than the generations before me in my family. And I think it's, it would definitely have been inspired by their lack of interest. Like, I want to know what's going on. I'm not okay with just letting things be. How did you arrive and what it, at your political perspective and what is that? Having experienced the degree of adversity that I've experienced, you know, my parents, they got back together when I was 12, and then they got in a huge fight the week after I graduated high school. And I got a call from my mom, her telling me not to go home. So I began living out of my car immediately, couch surfing, right? Although I had what would seem to be like everything I needed, all of a sudden it was gone. That's just another one of the experiences that allow for me to connect with people. Was that because you're Father came back and he didn't want you in the house? He was using drugs and he became violent. And so your mom didn't want you there again to witness this. That's right. And you had graduated high school. Mm -hmm. And so you're living in your car. You must have been so afraid and so alone. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Maybe you had friends to, to help you get through. But this is where you say you intersect with sort of the political services maybe or or the the services out there or what is it that at that juncture makes you so awaken to politics i'm a a white american woman and i had been in a relationship in my high school years with a white american boy i had broken up with him right before graduation and then this circumstance happened where i had to leave my home unexpectedly and i was alone without my, the safety net of my long-term boyfriend, without the safety net of my family, 
my mother refused to allow me access to her tax papers in order to apply for FAFSA so I can get financial aid for junior college. It wasn't my business as far as she was concerned. She didn't understand why I needed it. I I came to this independent perspective and I had to try to figure things out on my own and I was 18. But up until a certain age, the system is set up where you're you're dependent of your parents. And so in order to get the financial assistance necessary, your parents have to participate or you have to become independent by having a child or getting married. I had decided in that moment that I'd have a child. So just being over 18 isn't enough. That's right. Okay, see I don't know this. You have to, and I have other friends who are white Americans who didn't have access to the financial aid that enriches our wonderful junior college programs out here in Southern California. We have so many friends of mine who didn't have access because their parents refused to participate. And so there's people like And that's for the junior colleges, right? The community for anything. Co- okay, but for I, any I think it's a smaller aid. ask for It's a smaller ask. Right, but it's right. still the same application process regardless of the amount of FAFSA. Okay. Mm-hmm. So tell me what you do. So you're now you're not going home under your mom's suggestion. Mm-hmm. You have a car. I have a car. And you're deciding, okay, well, I'm going to surf you know couch surf and live in my car. I was working as a receptionist at an escrow office. So I felt like I was making good enough money and I was couch surfing between my best friend at Encoto de Casa and Buena Park. I was going back and forth. I'm single now, right? And very young, but very free. And I ended up hooking up with a guy who was 6 years my senior. Um, he was terrifying. He was terrifying. He was terrifying. And how did this come to be. He threw his phone number in my car while I was driving down Beach Boulevard. And uh my best friend was like, "Call that guy, let him take you on a date." Like, "Go ahead." We went to Cheesecake Factory with Irvine Spectrum. And he never let me out of his sight after that. And it was during that same time when the college counselor told me, "You can get independent by having a child." And he insisted that I have a child. And there was nobody to protect me. My family, my mom was so far, you know, dealing with my father and and whatever her issues were and, you know, everyone was everywhere and I've always been a really strong character so everyone thought I was fine, you know? And really I was living out of my car and I had been taken hostage by a person that I met. What are you thinking at this point? This I've is my ticket. This to, is going to help me. I've been raised to depend on the safety of men, right? My grandfather was there, my my dad was there, and the women catered to them. And so when I became 16 or so when I got my first boyfriend, so long as I was with my boyfriend, you felt safe. I I was his responsibility. Okay. So they my always My parents were hands off. And so I went from my parents to my boyfriend. I'd always had a man to take care of me, right? But you had some broken men in a broken way. Broken men. So is that what you are then attracted to? Men with a little bit of a break? <laughs> with a little bit of a fracture? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> that unconditional love and empathy that my mother instilled in me to look at the abuser and love him despite it all is something that's so unique that I feel so glad to have. I value it. My ability to love unconditionally is real. 
it's in me. And does that detract from the love of yourself to allow? Interestingly, be permissible I would, with. It puts me in a position of being able to take it. I can always take it, right? I can all and it is not despite myself, but bring it on. What more can you do? I've seen it all. Okay, well, then you're a strong woman, stronger <laughs> than I am. I would probably run from those situations. but and I, I shall. <laughs> I cannot I've learned. say for sure because I have not been in that situation. Um, I was just a child with my biological father who had a very volatile temper. And so do you fall hard and fast and, or is it just an opportunity to get out of your car? So where do you go from here after meeting this person? From there. I essentially became pregnant within three months of our relationship, uh, five months out of high school. And my, my mom had gotten us a place to live. You're now with your boyfriend, your mom helps you out, you get a place to live, and you're pregnant. Pregnant. Okay. 18 and, does, and a half and pregnant. So does that pregnancy put a halt on your aspirations to go to college? I continued attending college. It actually, I mean, as far as the college counselor was concerned, it did what I needed to do, right? Oh, so it did. I became a mother. The... I became independent. And it really put a fire under my tail. My son was born when I was 19, and I continued working. His father was active and involved and obsessed. He took care of him while I worked three jobs. I continued uh, attending classes. But at some point, that relationship began to reflect my childhood, right? And so it was short-lived, and I... I left that relationship to then uh, move out on my own with my baby and my best friend. We You're with this, this person until your baby's born, and for how long? I think my son was seven months. Then it had become a, an abusive relationship? It was the entire time, yeah. He would drop me off at work, take my car, I got paid, he would take all my money, and he would make sure I had everything I needed, but I would later find out that his lifestyle was absolutely undesirable. And okay. I was so naive, I had no idea. Oh, that's... Was his abuse his own, was it a drug abuse and alcoholism, alcoholism? Was it just an emotional or physical abuse of you? It was emotional and less often physical. He was sober. He didn't have any addiction problems, but he carried some baggage. Uh, he since passed away. So it's not something that I have to deal with anymore. Okay. And how are you raising your son at this point? You leave... The relationship, and I'm so glad that you did leave an abusive relationship. Mm -hmm. I don't know how much strength that would take, but I'd imagine a lot. It was tremendous. And especially with a little baby, a mm -hmm. seven-month-old. So you up and leave this relationship, and then do you go and apply for any government assistance or, you know, welfare or anything to help get... So at that time, I did. I got assistance for childcare so that I could work. I think there was a period of time that we had food stamps. My parents were consumed in, in themselves, right? And I then moved in with my best friend and I, two 19-year-old girls, got an apartment. And it was impossible for me to be able to afford life on my own while also paying for childcare. It was, it was entirely unreasonable. And the father wasn't participating financially. And I remember willfully and wholeheartedly believing that I needed that, right? And I did. And 
I fought really hard to continue working to make sure I can get out from underneath that. Whereas I know a lot of people, once they participate in that, they get stuck in it. And I think that I did a really good job of using the system in the way that it was meant to be used. Good. So it was just a hand up, not a perpetual handout. Absolutely. And so I see that when you were this little girl living in this stressful situation, at about seven years old, you're watching a live taping of the show Full House, Mm -hmm. and you say that Bob Saget inspired this career in uh, makeup artistry. That's right. So let me know a little bit about that, because I know that that's the career that you're in today. I was dropped off with family members throughout my childhood, right? My parents were always fighting, so they'd put us wherever, whoever would take us. And I'd often end up with my aunt, Chris, who has cerebral palsy. She and I would hop on the access bus. She's a really big woman and she had a manual wheelchair and I'd push her onto the access bus and we'd go to Hollywood. And she took me to these filmings, the Hollywood parade, and she had become friends with Bob Saget through academia. And she introduced me and he was always really kind to me. And I remember the first time that I saw the makeup artist come out between scenes. I had an emotional reaction to her powder puffing his face violently. I I stood up and I yelled, don't hit my friend. (laughs) I come from a household of domestic violence, right? And so I I was advocating, (laughs) don't hit him. And my aunt, who has cerebral palsy, didn't have much control over her muscles or her movements, but she grabbed my shirt and she threw me to the ground. And she said, you're embarrassing me, be quiet. And I said, you can't just let him be hit. And she said, that's the makeup artist. And I stood up and I'll never forget the feeling that I had over my entire body just staring, I wanna do that. (laughs) So that you could put the powder puff on, right? (laughs) I wanna be a makeup artist. When I, and I looked at her and I said, I'm going to be a makeup artist when I grow up. And she, she said, that's fine. Sit down and be quiet. Sit down. And from that point, I was obsessed. I went home to my grandparents' home where um, I used to do my homework at her desk. And for the first time, I opened the drawers of the desk. I never had opened the drawers before. And I found Jaffra makeup just filled the drawers. And I would dig in. At age seven, I was making my own face. And I felt the universe pull on me. At second grade, I felt it. Like, yes, God. Yes, whatever this is, I am here. So you're, you're, you've got this desire as a child to become a makeup artist. Mm-hmm. And when you are now, and I'm just trying to, to make the connection of where you came from to where you went. So at this point, as a child, you're like, I want to be a makeup artist. Now, fast forward to you living with your girlfriend with your seven-month-old son. Are you then doing anything in the makeup industry? Yes. Or are you? Okay, so you are. But you Okay, because you had a couple of jobs going on there. And I still do. (laughs) I still do. I live a pretty multifaceted life. So I I trained myself since age seven. My mom would drop me off at the mat counter by age 10. She bought me my first eyeshadow and lipstick by age 12. She's pretty conservative. So I had to beg and beg and beg and beg, but this is really what I wanted. I played no sports. I did no extracurricular activities. This was it. I was hyper-focused, hair and makeup, you know, little twisties with the clippies. Well, no wonder you're so good at it today. Oh my God, it it was obsessive. And so by the time high school came, um, I had actually experienced two strokes my freshman year and I missed the entire second half. We're going to have to pause there. You, it was, you become very ill? It was right before I turned 15 in January, is holiday break. 
and I had gone to sleep one day feeling like I was in a bubble. And I woke up shortly after falling asleep and I couldn't speak and half of my body was immobile. And I went to my dad and I was trying to communicate with him. And of course, his abusive selfie, making fun of me, right? And they realized shortly after that, that there's something wrong. And they took me to the emergency room. I was, they gave me a spinal tap. They released the spinal fluid from my brain that was swelling and, and they sent me home. And I had another stroke while at home. Um, and from that point, I, I was in the hospital for several months in a medically induced coma. I lost my ability to speak. My optic nerves were pinched, so my eyeballs hung straight down. I had no control. I turned 15 while in, at the hospital. Becoming mute is really interesting. Everything changed about me. When I woke up and, and regained my abilities, I was so gung-ho. I remember hearing the doctors tell my parents it's time to you know, say goodbye. There was nothing they could do to help me at some points. Doctors had come to study me, but no solution was being offered. So what I heard, I was cognitively aware the entire time without the ability to communicate. And so I feel like that experience absolutely changed everything about me. And once I, I came out of it and I realized I was able-minded and I was able-bodied, I felt, first of all, I wasn't gonna die a virgin. That was one of my biggest <laughs> things. I was absolutely not. I was going to get a boyfriend that year immediately. Um, as soon as I get my eyes look straight, I had to walk with my head tilted down so I could see straight so my eyeballs would go that way. I was going to do whatever I wanted. Okay. And makeup was it. So all of this goes on. You recover from this illness and you get your way through high school don't go back home. You have this seven-month-old son. You're living with your girlfriend. Now, where does the makeup artistry come back into your life as a career? So I had my first booking when I was 16. I did a, a teacher. She's a bride. And I kind of had started building my clientele from that. You know, you do one bride and then a bridesmaid's get, bridesmaid gets married and you do her makeup. So by the time I was 20... I was doing a few weddings and they were priority. They're a huge deal to me. Hair and makeup was a big deal to me, but making money was first and foremost. So I had a, a regular nine to five. Um, at some points I also would, I'd work my nine to five and then I also was a waitress. Um, and then I would do my events on the weekend. Nice. So I was constantly working. It sounds like a lot of stumbling blocks along the way. A lot Absolutely. of obstacles that mm -hmm. you got around. I know that you didn't mention, but I'll mention that your son is biracial. That first man that you married was a man of color. And you have this multicultural bridal and event styling program going. And what, what was the impetus for that? So I did end up getting married and having two more children. So I have the three and... They're all biracial. Um, I valued that diversity in my life. And in the beginning of my makeup artistry career, it was a lot of women that looked like, looked like me, right? Um, white blondes. White blondes, right? So Western bridal is what we call it. At some point, I stopped seeing myself in white blondes because I see myself in my brown children. So having the opportunity to work on women of color was important 
to me. I love making women feel beautiful and I didn't want to have to only make blonde white women feel beautiful. I wanted the opportunity to touch as many women as possible. My sway into a more of a multicultural space came really naturally because of my family dynamics and connections that I was able to make in the industry where I, I've now spent several years doing like Southeast Asian brides. So I, I can set scarves and I can do really cool upstyling and, and the makeup is so glamorous in, in India and Pakistan. A lover of people. Absolutely. What is your political affiliation today? I do not have a political affiliation. I want to have one. <laughs> I want something to believe in. I feel like I lean toward democratic, right? And then I meet incredible Republicans that give me so much amazing feedback that tell me more, tell me more, tell me more. And then I enter into the public school system where I'm like, is this democracy? Or and is this socialism? I want to talk about the public school system and why you would feel that way. Because of my experiences, I have not found my footing yet. Okay, so you kind of, when you vote, I'm assuming you vote? Or I do vote. Do you consider that a privilege or a right? I absolutely think it's a right, though also such a privilege. Good answer, Rachel. I consider it a privilege and a right as well. Um, I've had other people who are immigrants, who are, uh, who are naturalized citizens, who really consider it a privilege. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I think if we're Americans, it's a, pretty much a, a right for all of us, regardless of how you became an American. <sighs> See that you're still figuring out your political affiliation, and that's just fine. I mean, there's times where people just don't have a party and they say they vote for the person or they like what is going on with that party at that time. Right. And it's, it's hard to stick to a party. It's hard to stick to just an idea of something. When you dive into the topics and you dive into what's really going on, it's like, well, a little sprinkle over here, a little sprinkle over there. Can somebody just get it right? At the end of the day, democracy is what we need and want. Absolutely. Amen to that. I understand that your oldest son, I don't want to say special needs or extra needs or whatever it is. I don't want to label your son. So what happens when your son is a little boy and you're finding that he's got this ADHD or ODD or whatever it is that he's dealing with? What's the, because you said it's a little bit, it's been a battle for you, somewhat of a battle or a struggle to get the services needed through the public schools. I'm really excited to see lately that there's been more of a public service awareness for the socio-emotional health of young children. In the public school system at that time, he's 18 now, and so he was about six when he received his diagnosis. You know, he couldn't sit still. There's so many things, there's so many reasons why somebody would be diagnosed that way. The public school system at that time didn't take in consideration the whole child. It's first grade, second grade, the, all, the, the younger years of his education, I, I was fighting for the public school system to see him as a whole person. And if only they could do that, then they would be able to accommodate his whole needs, which he needed a little extra space. He's, you know, he's currently six, 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 yeah, he's six, six, 280 pounds, he's a big boy, he's always been a big boy. 
he, he needed space. And the public school system doesn't necessarily allow for that. He needed a lot of things that they didn't have for him. And so I would take him out and he did charter schools and he did homeschooling and I'd put him back in. And I really felt like it was necessary for me to be there and tell the administration like, hey, let's try harder. And these other options aren't working either. So I'm gonna come back to what I know is here. I'm from the pu public school system and that's where I was familiar. So I felt it was really my right and my privilege to participate. And so I've had a lot of conversations over the years trying to bring awareness to the whole child in the public school system. There's been a little more now I'm noticing, but back then it was all numbers. And there's a whole movement, schools, not prisons. And if you look at how the children are, are kind of moved around and how they function in the public school system, and you look at the prison system, you find shocking parallels. What is the system? The schedule, <laughs> the eight to three, you get in, you do what you're told, you move the paper here, you add the numbers up there, you tell the big guy this, you go over here, you do this, everybody gets herded here, herded there. At the end of the day, as an adult in the system, as a teacher perhaps, we need teachers. I, I love the teachers. I wish they were treated better because they're working for benefits. They're not working for livelihood. So your son had some good teachers then in the he system? He had brilliant teachers. Okay. So what was the hole there? Just that the approach to how they were working with him? There's been programs that have been introduced through our experience that try to fill in those those holes. And what what they were is is really not leaving enough room to be a human. So your son is now 18 and he's doing well. Yeah. You have two other kids. So mm -hmm. so after your first divorce, you meet someone else. You have two more kids, and how are those guys doing? They're amazing. They're also in public school. Their experience has been much different. Okay. Um, well, they don't have any so-called special functioning. Was the second relationship abusive as well? Not initially. I wasn't picking up on the cues. The alcoholism was present immediately, and as the years went on, as uh, the alcoholism became more and more prevalent. So my, I raised my children in an alcoholic family for years. And that, that environment became abusive as he chose Brandy over his marriage. That was tough. That was really tough to relive. Who was the most influential person in your life when you were growing up? I'd have to say it was my, my stepfather. He influenced me. Stepfather. not saying he influenced me positively. But he definitely created something inside of me that knows better and does better. And that piece of me is strong and enduring. Well, we have him to thank for that then. Right? right? Isn't it something to think? I mean, my mother, my grandmother, my aunts, they are wonderful women all around me, very nurturing. But this, this very strong feeling I have inside of me is definitely from him. Wow. Okay. And what about today? Who is the most influential person, if you have one in your life today? Myself. I am very focused on my personal experience. 
in this world. I believe that is what we're here to do. We're here to experience this life. I value the people around me very much. I have great friends, great family. My children are incredible and they are influential on my life, obviously. But I know that I want my kids to see me living. I want my kids to see that life is worth living. And the only way to do that is to mind my business. How do you feel or do you feel anything about the political landscape right now in America? I feel scared. I feel really unsure. And especially since I'm still trying to find my grounding and it's like it's sand beneath my feet. The media is throwing Trump in front of our faces and, and I started to believe him. I started to trust him. Like that little girl in me was like, Daddy? <laughs> Were you actually listening to what he was saying? Because I've had conversations where if you listened to what he was saying, it was kind of scary if you took him seriously. It was scary. I did listen. And today it could have been this and tomorrow it was that. And there was so much juggling in our brains, in my brain. I was confused. I voted for Trump. And I did it because I was confused. And I know that. I didn't know what to do. Do you think maybe it's familiarity for you that you're familiar with that strongman type or that? Because he's a bit of a, a bully. bully. Right. Right. So you vote for Trump. Are you excited when he wins? Like, do you think this is the future? I was sitting on my Tell hands. Tell me a thought process. I was sitting on my hands and hoping for this to go by really fast <sighs> because he's a sexist and he's a bigot. And what did I just do? But I downplayed it. Maybe my vote didn't count that much. Maybe it wasn't me, right? It wasn't me. I didn't do that. <laughs> so I spent a lot of time in denial. And then when it came time for us to vote again, I didn't want him back. But then here we are today. And I'm further confused. <laughs> you did mention bigot. Have you yourself or through your kids seen any straight up racism? Absolutely. And how does a mom handle that when their child is being treated differently because of the color of his skin or her skin? The first time I experienced it was when we were living at the foothills of Cota de Caza. It's a very Caucasian neighborhood. And I'm a Caucasian blonde, right? And I have this brown son and a Cuban best friend and we live in this neighborhood and we're loud. And I remember being in the grocery store and like a rich white lady told me to shut my child up, but Did used they? the N-word. And I, I was 21 and had the confidence of God knows what. I was very confident. And so I told her to shut up. How dare you? It was upsetting. It's a child, yeah. And since then, you know, my son's now driving and he deals with different experiences on the road. Like people are mad at him for being black and driving. And he sometimes, and being a man, he has to deal with these like strange dynamics I have no control over anymore. But it's scary. It's I really, it's, it's something that he reports often. I'm really sorry that you have to deal with that and that he has to deal with that just for being a person of color. Right. It's just unjust and it's wrong. My biggest hope for the future is for families 
to take control over their individual cultures, their finances. I think financial literacy is going to help America across the board. People don't know how money works. People don't know what to do with or without money. And I think that that key component that's not taught in our public school system. And I see that that's an alternate career goal for you is to understand and share what you've learned about financial literacy. And your goal is to help as many families as you can. That's right. So give me a little bit of background on what it is that financial literacy exactly expresses. Knowing how to invest your money and help your money work for you instead of you working for your money is important. Preparing for your future is important. And not everybody's going to go to college, but everybody's going to die. And I think life insurance is something that we're, you know, we're offered, but we're not educated about. I think people need to be prepared and and the financial climate of our, of our country right now is terrifying. We live in this amazing area where people have access. They have access to books and they have access to the internet. And they have access to other people who know things that have read the books and they want to talk about it. There are pockets of the country where they don't have that. And they do live off the system. And the system is, that's where they get their food. That's where they get their housing. That's where they get their cash flow from the system and their whole communities of people living that way with no access to the information that would help them find some sense of independence. And you need money to live. You need a plan. (laughs) I wanted to talk about your religious faith because we didn't really pinpoint what that is today, what, what you take bring to your home, to your children, as far as your religious affiliation? I've raised my kids closest to the non-denominational Christian church. We used to go every Sunday. They attended Christian preschool, Sunday school, youth nights. I felt like I was doing the right thing in making sure they had something, right? They had access. The, the Bible is a great book, and you know a lot of people live by it. If that's what they choose, good for them. I love religion in all forms. And was religion something that helped you personally get through the trials and tribulations throughout your lifetime? I wouldn't say that religion is what helped me through. But my conscious awareness of spirit, knowing that there is something bigger out there, has held me through all of the things that I've experienced. I mean, this, it's more than, you know, you asked who the, the most influential person is, and I would say myself because it's through me that God works. Without my life, God cannot work through me. So God is the most what I call God, right, is the most influential energy for me. Beautiful. How do you feel about a separation of church and state? Because of how much I value autonomy of the spirit and how, how much I value humans as whole people, 
I believe that it should be separate. Amen to that. So I wanted again to say thank you so much for being here with us today. It's an honor that you shared your story with me. Thank you for having me. It was such a pleasure. Great sitting down with you. This episode of Deborah Craddock was hosted by me, Deborah Drucker. It was edited by Juan Sanson and produced by Lee Rocker and Chloe Cassins. Thank you to our engineers, Adam Burt and Hunter McKellar, for making me sound good. Our amazing music was performed by Amy Nelson and Kathy Guthrie of Folk You. Be sure to rate and review this episode wherever you listen to podcasts. For more Deborah Craddock, check out DebraCraddock.com and our Instagram at Deborah Craddock. That's D-E-B-O-R-A-H Craddock. Like Democratic. Until next time. Political is personal, so let's talk about it. <laughs>